Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Remember when you used to defragment your disk on computers back in the day? That's what I'm trying to do to my brain at the moment. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Well, Julia Morris is one of Australia's most accomplished and celebrated performers. She's been on our screens for 30 plus years, if not longer. And of course, she's one of the 10 family as a co-host of I'm a Celebrity. Get me out of here. Hopefully you're not going to say that now. Good morning and welcome to Short Black, Julia Morris. It's great to finally have you here. Oh, Sandra, I couldn't be more thrilled. I am an avid fan of the short black and uh, I'm always having a little sniff around on Instagram. So I'm thrilled to be actually part of it. I can go on and, uh, and watch myself on Instagram, which is, of course, one of my favourite things to do. I've always wanted to talk to you to find out who Julia Morris is away from the screen. Everyone sees you being funny, co-hosting, of course, I'm a Celebrity and a whole range of other things and house husbands, you name it, you've done it. So what's a typical day for Julia Morris? After the last 12 months, you know, minimum of 12 months, where as a Victorian I've been in my home, I mean, everyone's, I'm sure, sick of hearing what we've got to say about it, but I definitely, after the first few weeks, I thought, you know what, there's no point being all particular. I'm just going to chill out a bit and make cakes with the kids and eat, you know, 974,000 packets of raspberry bullets. Plus, I'm also a person who travels a lot for work. I go up to Sydney to shoot stuff. Uh, Most of the time we're in Africa for the jungle. So this past 12 months of being in my home has allowed me to slow down all that madness, all that madness of my usual day-to-day life. If I was normally getting ready for uh, to go to the jungle, it'd be like, I'll go and see my personal trainer, then I would duck out and do some chores and then make the house ready for when the kids get home and then start that entire process of... (laughs) of getting them to bed, which I start at 3.30. I'm not mucking around. There's a lot of stairs in place. (laughs) And so COVID and being locked down just turned all of that on its head and the things that had been important to me before that all of a sudden I didn't care about, one of them being the intake of sugar that I was having. And the other side of things was learning what to do when you've got nothing on. I mean, I I did write a book over that lockdown time, but... Normally I am used to very much being on the move. So it was quite a big psychological shift for me to then say, okay, I'm in the house. I don't need that amount of energy at all times. I'm a bit like once I'm out the door of my home. You're on? Yeah, I'm kind of on. Hopefully not a high octane on, but certainly like trying to be the best version of myself. Yeah. Because that's kind of, that's sort of how it is. When people approach you, they want you to be nice. It's better to leave the house with a nice attitude. And you're not being your duplicitous self. You're just being that other self. You know, sometimes I think people expect me to be that newsreader all the time. And I say, look, part of me role plays that job because when I turn up, I have to be that person, but it's not all of me. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, also, so I guess, apart from the brilliance that it takes to be a newsreader or writer, is to deliver the tone at the exact moment that it's required, at, in the exact way that it should land. It's um, being outside the door, I think, is when I've got my maximum brain on. And then when I come back in the house, I definitely take it back a few gears. You know, I'm raising teenage girls. I've got Dan Pottering. I've got a puppy dog. So there's always a bit happening in our house. It's just how do these four people start to, and one puppy dog, start to live together in this entirely new environment. It really took some brain space to kind of be okay with the last 12 months. Have you had to carve out any time at home for yourself or what have you learned about yourself and your behaviour that you've been surprised at or you've had to change? Well, I am, I'm blessed with teenage ladies, so they are 13 and, turning 13 and turning 15, so I never see them. <laughs> they are up in their bedrooms with the iPads, uh, see ya. So as far as I'm concerned, I do actually get a lot of time to myself. <laughs> so what are you doing? You know, have you taken up Sudoku? Have you taken up crocheting? Are you watching more reality TV? No, I'm cleaning my house. I love cleaning. I've been trying to work out over the last 12 months, what is it that I like to do? So if left to my own devices, finally with this time on my hands for the first time in 30 years of working and in my business, or certainly my, you know, the live performing side of the business, you're not working, you're not eating. So that momentum has never stopped. I feel like the COVID has given me semi-retirement while stacking all the work into a shorter period of time. So the laundry cupboard is neat as a pin and, yeah. you know, everything is sorted. You've sort of done the Murray Kondo of the whole house. Oh, I've got more condo to go. I've got more condo to go. I, I love all that culling and getting rid of it. The problem is the emotional connection between, God, I could get money for those if I sold them and am I ever going to sell them? Never. Get rid of it, get rid of it. And there's something that... Remember when you used to um, defragment your disk on computers back in the day? Vaguely. And you'd have to get rid of double files and all that. That's what I'm trying to do to my brain at the moment. While life is still not business as usual, I'm like, oh, I, I can get some nice clearing done in my head of stuff that just doesn't matter. And I think turning 53 has an enormous amount to do with that too. It's not that I lacked faith in my gut and my decision process, but at 53, you're kind of like, I mean, good luck those around me having already been through the situation like I undoubtedly will have been at 53, whatever that situation is in life. Turning 50, was that a milestone for you emotionally or was it just another day? Uh, it was a bit of both. I think I was excited to be 50. I think, think 40s is a really super weird time period and I felt like 40s, I was kind of oscillating between trying to still look sexy and appealing and then the flip side of that, which is, oh, God, who cares? I'm going out in my tracksuit and my uggies today. There's, there's this weird awakening of my last chance of being sexy is how I felt my 40s were. And then swapping over to 50s, I now I'm kind of like, oh, no, I'm, an, I'm starting to move into territory of being an elder. And you're going to own it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, trying to put more laughs into every single day instead of worrying about what does my skin look like? What, you know, what are my hips doing? Oh, I can feel that balcony over the top of my trousers in just pure stomach skin. So trying to let go some of that 
stuff out of the brain that just no longer matters and realising that actually, you know, raising two kick-ass girls, having a lovely home life, trying your best with your community and helping where you can, that's kind of where it was at. And then achieve, 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 achieve. And then punchline, oh, that's actually where it's at. It was really only about that all along. It's just about creating yummier space to get through life with less aggression, you know, less bitterness. I used to get jealous of people who would get jobs that I didn't even want. What is that about? I don't know. It's just part of that, you know, maturation of being a woman. And I, I found, you know, I mean, I was always pretty fit and healthy and I'm, you know, reasonably a bit of both, but... When I turn 50, you notice your body just doesn't respond to the instructions the way it did. Mm. Has that been difficult to come to terms with? It has been for me. It's really annoying. Look, I would be super chill because I figure, you know, I'm, I don't necessarily sell my beauty. Uh, you know, that's not my trading card. I, I don't, that's not the right way to say it. But the thing that interrupts your flow with turning 50 is that your hair changes. It goes to this weird sort of stringy, weird, witchy weirdness. Like your skin all starts to take on darkness of the sunshine pig on a spit moment that I will have exposed it to over the years. And you get these sort of lines starting to, yeah. you know, it's the pillow creases that don't bounce back. They're just sort of there. I've got a baby's ass on my neck. <laughs> So, and then what happens is that that sort of goes down the scale. So starting to let go of, oh, let go of the first half, which I think was about for me, apart from being funny and all the stuff, whatever, but in my own head, my, my beauty and my ego. So that was totally, whereas this second half of my life, I'm kind of like, I am the youngest in this new old crowd now. I'm not the oldest with all the young people looking ridiculous, trying to, with my boob tube, trying to fit in. Now I'm the youngest of this uh, older crowd and I figure, let's do this. If, who knows, I've got another 40 years on the planet. I don't know. I've got 40 years to not complain about my weight now. I've done that for the first 50. I can't do that now for the second. What? It's so boring. You come across to me as someone that can roll with the punches, particularly in the social media trolling space and the backlash you get because in television, People see you before they hear you, so they judge you before they even know what you're there to talk about or to laugh about. Absolutely. But every year with I'm a Celebrity, every time you do stand-up, every time you do House Husbands or another drama or another TV moment, you get smashed. And I stay away from it, Sandra, honestly. Like, every now and then there'll be some comment in my Instagram, you know, just saying, you're not funny, you're, you're an idiot, I hate you, I wish you would die, whatever. You're just like, oh, all right, darling. Look, some days I feel like that too, but it's not today. So I tend to, not unlike reviews, any reviews on the show I stay away for because I think that really dictates uh, your performance for the coming shows because somebody said I've got like a weird drag queen voice. So, oh, remember, do I need to get softer with that or... I can't dictate what your honest performance is. So in staying away from it, I only hear about it if somebody else says to me, oh, my God, I had a go at those people who were saying that, you know, how horrible you are or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Because I honestly believe in reading some of that negative stuff. It just fills up in a little negative filing cabinet in your head. And when you are trying to be brave and different and whatever in your performance... It eats away like a cancer, doesn't it? It definitely does. And, and I've seen it. I've seen your words. Your words came from your direct nastiness into your phone, into my phone and into my head. 
why is you calling me an idiot or, you know, stupid or a bitch or whatever, how, how come is that having an effect on my day? That's, and it will have an effect on my day. I'm not so brave or together that I can see it and block it. I have to take kind of more primary action to make sure I don't see it at all because I'm not that grown up. Let's talk about the more superficial side of TV, which is even more brutal than all the other stuff. With all the hosting duties with I'm a Celebrity, A, you've got to find a practical solution based on the environment where you're being dropped into, and then you've got to marry that with somehow being a co-host so that it's got to be sort of glamorous, either over the top, what I loved about the last series or two. I love the whole glass thing that you're doing. Yes. What's your thinking each year as you approach a show like that as to wardrobe and the look? Well, um, in the first year when we went, we didn't really know what to expect from the terrain or from... The climate, yeah. Absolutely. So, and as you know, you came over a number of times. It's, it's pretty hardcore. It's, you know, it can be 40 degrees in the afternoon at 5pm. And we, we choose a stylist. Uh, we've had a few stylists through the show. And we choose a stylist at the time who sort of, I guess, bringing something fresh. Not knowing what the terrain was going to be like, we kind of made up Series 1. Then in Series 2, I'd made a conscious decision to go really couture. I loved the idea of unbelievably cut garments in this arid bushland where we were for shooting the show. And through Series 2, it became apparent that, that like a lot of that couture stuff, it was too over-sewn, I was too boiling. We couldn't really do heels up in that terrain. It's just hard to work in. And it just looked ridiculous. So I was thinking that it would look like impossibly fresh, you know, on the savannah. And in actual fact, it just looked like I'd made a bad decision on what to wear on that day. So by series three, it started to take on this new life. And now that we're sort of into series eight, for the last few years, I've had the lovely Lauren Boutros, who's an amazing young stylist. And I sort of steered clear from very young stylists because I kept thinking, oh, no, they're not going to understand, like, uh, make the hips invisible, focus on the, this, you know, this part tends to be smaller, as, you know, when you're sort of in your 40s and 50s, whereas this pit's like, heh. Yeah, and I really need a waist because everything else just goes that way. Absolutely. And, Sandra, like, I don't, I, I don't want to, like, they're there, but I don't want to be all boobs, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They're still doing all right, those old chuzzies. <laughs> But you don't, I don't want to be like skin earrings, hey, because I'm not, now that I'm in my 50s, I'm not projecting that kind of cougar thing that I did in the first couple of years. I didn't know Dr Chris very well in those first couple of years and oddly my flirting and which I was always double-checking with him that he is, was fine with it. I know. Because it wasn't crack-on flirting because I'd be like as if I would stand a chance. People got very cross about my flirting in those first couple of years and um, were sort of like, you know, if someone did this to a woman, how would you feel? And you're like, well, somebody kind of has for the last, what, 900 years? Yeah, and look, he was always in on the joke. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So in these last couple of years where, honestly, my eyesight has just, you know, my up close is quite blurry, my distance (laughs) as I'm driving along, I'm like, what's that? I wonder what that street name is. So the glasses were a choice. Because of the hours that we work in Africa, contacts aren't even a consideration because you try and do that weirdness at kind of four o'clock in the morning and open this one and open that one and get that. And I'm like, is it it in or has it gone down the sink? (laughs) 
So contacts weren't for me. So literally two years ago, I just said to the guys, who had, both ITV and Channel 10 had mentioned to me over the time, you know, you are welcome to wear your glasses if you want. And I kept thinking, oh, they're so ageing. Anyway, so yeah, two years ago, I'm like, I can't actually see the auto cue. And so I did that series with my glasses. So that's the series before this one gone by. And all of a sudden, my performance just leapt because I could see the auto cue and I could see the timing and where the joke was supposed to come in and everybody was properly shocked that <laughs> this enormous difference, this chasm between actually reading the jokes and getting them right or having the nervous energy of the prior five years of kind of looking at the auto cue, thinking that's a bit blurry, I think it's that joke, now I'm going to look at Chris and try and deliver it. Now, working with a stylist, and, and I've got Lizzie, who's worked at 10 on and off, you know, for 30 years, and we're good mates. It's a real relationship, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's definitely been a wonderful lesson for me in terms of, is this a beautiful dress or is this a beautiful dress on me? There's a very big difference between those two. And I have come across people in years gone by who would say, look at this incredible dress. Then I'd get it on and it was horrible on me. So I think the relationship that I have with Lauren is that I trust her implicitly because she has such a beautiful style and she chooses things I wouldn't even see on the rack. So I definitely have the confidence in her to be like, at least I'll try it. I also think maybe over the last 12 months to 15 months, I've even let a lot of that control go. I'm like, if you, you want me to put that on, mate, great. Are you only going to look this much better or this much worse than what you actually look like? So in getting more realistic, there's a real confidence in just letting go and, you know, feeling fabulous. Because I used to see sort of much more substantial people really confident and rocking their outfits. And I'm like, I want to be like that. Yeah. Why am I all like, oh, that makes, you know, I know I'm talking heaps about weight. I don't even mean to today. But, um, yeah, part, certainly part of the stylist thing is to make you look and feel better. And, you know, I mean, how hard can it be? You go into gorgeous makeup. Your hair is the best it's ever looked. And then you step into some outfit that hurts your feelings. It's so beautiful as if your performance isn't going to be amazing. Well, the reality is we work in a TV game predominantly. If I want to do my job well, I don't want them to still be guffawing at what they first saw. I want them to hear me. So you need that initial adjustment, the visual adjustment to be as seamless as possible. And then what, what is she saying? Totally. And if you feel good about what you're doing, then you don't focus on it anymore. 100%. So where I guess I fall over within that structure of our business is that I don't necessarily take responsibility for my side of things. So I'm not drinking enough water. I'm not doing all the things that we read our celebrities do. No wonder they've got gorgeous faces and gorgeous bodies and gorgeous lives because they've got a chef and they're, you know, having water facials every two weeks and all that sort of stuff. So as you approach the season of I'm a Celebrity Again, do you sort of have a mild panic where you think, all right, six weeks, like get your shit together? Totally. You're cutting the sugar, you drop the wine, is it just vodka and tonic? What are you doing? Absolutely done all of that. Literally every word that you said. I realised that I had 12 weeks, so I thought, okay, this is, this is a couple of weeks ago, so I'm like, okay, 12 weeks, what can I do in 12 weeks that's realistic, that's not having me feeling bereft every day that doesn't feel like some full-time job of 
Well, you don't want to be in denial, you know, and it doesn't need to be torture. And also, like, I could get to... I could do absolutely nothing, get up to um, set, and honestly, I'm not pressured about my body in any way from my work, but the difference is how heart-fit and I am and can I keep up with the pace? Because we are in there at 6 o'clock in the morning and a lot of the time they'll be a real fully-blown high-octane personality 12-hour day and then on at least seven of the days over the shoot, they're 17-hour days in a row. So I can't be all like, oh, no, I forgot to even take one walk to get, you know, my heart fit ready for this. So part of getting fit and well is actually to make your match fit. And also I think there's something about my physicality, when I, certainly when I'm on the set, that I like the... Like, I like to play with the comedy of my body, not make fun of my size, but, you know, I'm very physical when I'm on the set. So, yeah, I want, I want to be in, in the best form for that. And I feel like maybe the last couple of years I've left myself slightly behind the eight ball, and this year I'm not mucking around. I must say the second year of lockdowns has got me going, what do I want to do? So um, that's been good. So is that Pilates? Is it sit-ups on the couch? What have you developed? Or have you got your own home trainer? I've got, got a trainer that I go and see twice a week and he sort of specialises in people over 50, I think, maybe. <laughs> well, they go a bit easier once you start puffing. I don't need to carry a damn tyre with a chain around my waist up and down the beach. Like, I, I, oh, ten more! Here's ten more. <laughs> no, that's inappropriate. Um... Oh, yes, I want it to be, I want it to feel more fun if I, if I have to do all that. But, you know, as the time gets closer, of course, I make more inclusions to every day to make sure I can uh, hopefully, you know, get there by the time we start shooting. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, behind every really impressive, strong woman is a really impressive, strong man. And Dan makes up the other half of your family. You met and fell in love in London all those years ago. Are there many other men in your world, in your orbit, that step up the way he steps up? Yeah, the men, the men in my life are pretty great. I've definitely lost over the years any of the ability to make fun of men because the men that are in my orbit are amazing. You know, they're warm, they're kind, they're considerate, they're uh, not lazy. So I, I don't know whether that's a great list of attributes, but, yeah, when I, well, certainly when I'm away, I know that the girls, you know, Dan's a lovely cook, so he'll do his, all sorts of dishes so that everybody's fed. and He manages it all really well. Yeah, he's, he is a, uh, he's a great multitasker, our Dan. He just gets the job done and he's, he's just kind of happy doing that side of things. And he's a writer as well, so that gives him that luxury of time 
to then go and, you know, sit at the keyboard, but knowing that I've got between nine and three. And then when I'm home, I take over all of that. So then he's allowed to sort of do a bit more, I guess, of things that he wants to do rather than being hostage to this schedule for the kids. Now you've travelled, lived in London, lived in the US, and there's lots of good stories you've told over the years about all of that. But when I look through your past and I realise that Celebrity Apprentice was where, you know, you won that first year and I think you raised 200000 or so for breast cancer. And then to come full circle and find out all these years later that Dan himself was diagnosed with breast cancer. That's right, yeah. Well, um, uh, that sort of happened... We've been living in the States. This was prior to Apprentice and he had found a lump in his chest when we were in L.A., and he went and had it looked at then. They were kind of like, it's sort of like a fatty deposit, you know, when you work out a bit. Yeah, it was this little cyst. It can kind of hang there. And then within about 12 months, we'd moved home to, back home to Australia after Apprentice because I just felt like something's happening here. This has not felt like this in my career before where there felt like there was a real energy under my work for the first time in a long time, even though I haven't stopped Working. I was out of Australia in London for eight years where I worked very successfully through that time. But of course, coming back home, you do have to start a good deal of your business again. So Dan at the time had a belly button hernia and it was kind of one of those things that he meant to get round to sorting out. And then he went to see a surgeon friend of my mum's. My mum worked for this surgeon for years as his bookkeeper. And he said, look, I'm just going to take that out on your boob anyway. Yeah, might as well. Like, it's not going to hurt as much as your tummy. Your tummy, because you get the little piece of gauze and you push your tummy in and whatever, that's going to hurt. So we, <laughs> we had that operation done. They whipped out that. That was fine, whatever. A week later we went back and we were... Uh, I think that it's the first time that I had had Botox and it had finally kicked in, right, that week. And we got in to see the surgeon. I mean, I'm not making light of this in any way. And he said, okay, well, here's what's happened to... No, here's what's happened to the tummy. That's repairing really well. I'm super pleased with that. This, however, is a uh, carcinoma in situ or a single cell. I can't remember the exact details. It's in there. And, and I'm like, what, like breast cancer? And he said... The doctor was like, yes. And I was like, oh, okay, well, what do we do about that? And he said, I'd like to operate on Dan tomorrow. And I am the sort of person that goes immediately into, right, fix it. I need someone to pick up, someone to drop off. Take me to the da 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 I'll just go into, right, let's get everything so everything's as smooth as it can be for the operation. Let's do it. So I started all that. We get into the car and Dan said, God, you were, you were so amazing in there. You, you really took control and because uh, it's so, it such a flood of traumatic information, I was just, thank God you were there. You know, it was wonderful. And I said, oh, babe, I can't, I can't move my face. <laughs> Didn't look upset at all. In fact, just looked like I was ducking out for a shop. I think the fact that it was breast cancer really only hit us after the fact. It was a very quick turnover from you've got breast cancer to being on the operating table the next day. And we were sort of leading up to Christmas. We were a week shy of Christmas and we were a week and a half shy of moving the entire family from Sydney to Melbourne. So I like to put as much on my plate at one time as possible just to see if I implode. But anyway, Dan is completely in the clear now. But it's certainly life's contrazoom moments are incredible. Dan also died in my arms about three years later from an anaphylaxis nightmare. So he likes to pop his clogs every couple of years and see if I can bring him back to life. Just to keep you on your toes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm the guy you want with you in an emergency. Apparently I'm a superhero. Whatever. 
So you got the EpiPen, what happened? Well, no, we didn't even know about EpiPen and we'd been sitting in the lounge room in our place. We had this thing where we'd started to slow down life a little bit, that same theme, and I said to the girls, right, let's have pyjama Saturday once a month. No one gets out of your pyjamas. It's illegal to get out of your pyjamas. You can come and go from the lounge room while we watch movies. We're going to make pancakes. That's the Saturday. You can go in your room and chill, come out and chill, whatever. Lovely. So on this particular Saturday, Dan was like, oh, I don't really feel that great. I'm like, oh, God, okay. Do you need anything? Oh, oh, could you get me my Telfast? So I was like, oh, God, I've got to do everything. So I go into the kitchen, get the Telfast, bring it back out again, and um, by this point he goes like this. Uh, I think you need to call an ambulance. I'm like, I've never called an ambulance before, Sandra. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not calling an ambulance. He's like, no, really, I just don't. I think I'm having a reaction to something. So I'm like... I mean, the thing is, and I'm sort of getting ready to get my phone and are you sure an ambulance is away? Like, that's where the space I was in. And he turns around and he's like the Michelin man. The whole face has come forward. And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, I need to call the ambulance right now. And with that, starts volcano spewing while I'm sitting next to him just trying to get onto the, uh, onto the ambos. So then after the volcano spewing, and then the girls came in the room. They were, they were much younger. They would have been about eight and six and I was like oh can you get some towels please and then I'm on the phone to the ambos I want you guys to get the keys go and open the big front gates out the front and go and stand on the balcony away from where the uh, ambo is going to back in because I get all detailed nutbag superhero right yeah you're really you're good in a crisis well because I kept thinking I don't want them seeing nothing's happening to Dan I didn't know that's what was happening to Dan but I, no one wants to see their father in distress volcano spewing on a couch do you know what I mean so I'm like mm. if you can do a job and be useful to this process you, everyone will feel better yeah so they went out um, to the little front porch and with that he just died I, I couldn't get him into the recovery position because as a as a registered uh, televisual nurse whatever house husbands I did know the position that I needed to get him in. I didn't know that I needed to clear his throat. I knew all of that stuff. But by that point, he was just a blue and I'm still on the phone to the Ambos. Not freaking out. No, I oddly wasn't. I was just kind of, I, I think I started to cry by then, to be fair. And then kind of got Dan more straight, reached in his face and just, <laughs> just cat scratched the tongue out of the throat. And then I could hear gurgle and I could hear a little bit of air moving through, but he was still out. And then in come the Ambos to save the day. And they walk in like those total dream boats that they are. You know what the Ambos are like. There was three of them, beautiful woman and two guys, and two of them sort of holding hands with the girls as they came in going, right, where's Dan? Oh, Dan, you're causing a bit of trouble. And they were, you know how they're just so dreamy. Yeah. So the girls felt a lot more calm. I felt instantly calm because I'm like, the Ambos are here now. It's not... It's no, you know, it's no longer on my watch, if that makes sense. And they gave him two adrenaline pens to bring him back. So that was pretty intense. And what caused it, do you think? Well, we didn't know for a long while. So after that, he had about another... He had four major anaphylaxis taken away by the ambulance attacks the night I arrived in Africa to shoot the show and three other ones throughout the course of me being in South Africa. I mean, there's... Honestly, nothing more relaxing than being in another country while your young children are calling the ambulance for your husband who may or may not be dying. I mean, it's all very relaxed. 
the perception is it's all glamorous with what we do. And, and there's been enough talk shows and reality shows to show the other side. But when you hear these real-life stories of, of frightening moments and, you know, as a mother and a wife to be on the other side of the world and be so completely helpless... And you've been through that three or four times. Well, it turns out that after ages of going into the Alfred, they've got an amazing uh, allergy clinic in there. And there happened to be one of the doctors who happened to be visiting, it was one of those stories, where Dan, who's so hilarious, he had a big spreadsheet of anything he'd ever eaten or, you know, cream or whatever he'd done. It was all written out. And she said to him, how long have you been taking Armour Force, which is a amazing kind of immune booster? And he said, uh, oh, five years? So initial reactions would be, well, OK, it's not that. No, it was 100% that. So there's a little product that uh, it's cut with called Andrographis, and that's what he's allergic to. So every time he'd start to feel a little bit down, he would take uh, this immune booster. And in doing that, was starting to build up, build up, build up until the anaphylaxis started to take over. So, you know, you can all of a sudden become allergic to something you've been taking for ages. Listen, away from television, your love is comedy and yet you've worked in drama, you've studied drama in the US. What's your first love? What do you prefer to do if you had a choice? I think, I don't know, I, I, I really loved being on House Husbands. Of all the things that fill up my soul bucket, stand-up is incredible. Nothing will ever replace that exchange in the live theatres where the, that wave of laughter comes at you where you think it's going to push you over. And television is rewarding in a different way. I think that drama and acting would be my true first love. And it is how I started. So I started at the ensemble theatre at the school way back in, like, 86. And then I couldn't find my way in. I wasn't from an entertainment family or, you know, we lived in Gosford and my mum did the books for a surgeon and my dad was track manager at Gosford Race Club. So we weren't high society showbiz people. And um, I think that stand-up, I went away to work for Club Med as a singer and a dancer, like sort of 19, 20, 21. And then when I came home, stand-up comedy felt like the only way in for me because I certainly had enough stage experience. I'd done lots of musicals, you know, in an amateur setup. Just take me back. Is that how you auditioned for Club Med, just some high school stage musicals? What was that audition like? Sort of, yeah. Well, um, actually... How it happened was a girlfriend of mine said, oh, my gosh, we've got to apply for this job. You get to sing and dance in the shows at night and you get to just, you know, lie in the sun all day. I'm like, signature job. This sounds amazing. And at the time, it was a little sheet of, uh, you know, filling in an application form. And I decided that I would do something different to stand out because of all those applications that come in over time for any job. And in those days, in that sort of mid-'80s, People weren't doing, well, I don't know, in my experience, they weren't doing very unusual stuff. Like I created a big red uh, This Is Your Life book about me and why Club Med would be amazing if they took me on board. I don't even know if it still exists, but Club Med was such a big thing. Yeah, a wonderful holiday destination. It was just the most fun you could have as a young person. We were off the leash at night. (laughs) And then in the daytime, you'd potter and help guests find their way and, you know, so it was, it, was a pretty, it was a pretty wonderful time period. Well, I didn't know you started in theatre and that was your background. So when you popped up as the lead actress on House Husbands, I honestly was surprised and, of course, impressed because you owned it. 
Well, also, I just hadn't got to show that before then. I hadn't got to show those skills. So just before starting House Husbands, I'd been, um, I went back to drama school because the system in Los Angeles is quite different to what's needed here. Just very slight differences in comedy timing, in tone, in all sorts of stuff. So doing two years in the US at drama school, by the time I came back here and had that success on Apprentice, and then um, Michael Healy, who at the time was heading up all of the programming for Channel 9, he said, well, what do you want to do? Often if you win a reality show or you stand out for something within the network, you'll get invited in and you're kind of like, where, where, what do you want to do? Now, it's very rarely realistic when people go into those meetings. They're like, I want a chat show and I want a travel show and I want to do this and I want to do that, whereas really... <laughs> really what you're saying in those meetings is, yeah, I can come in and do a bit of the morning show tomorrow morning. Do you know what I mean? So it's not the big opportunity that you think it's going to be. But as the world turned at that time, Michael Healy said, I've got this drama that we're uh, looking at at the moment and just finalising some scripts and bits and pieces. And I think you'd be great for it. Then about four months went by of fresh air. And I'm like, oh, that's obviously gone away. And then uh, I was sent in literally for an audition with the sort of bits of dialogue from my character Gemma and by later that night I had the job. And have you had another big acting break since or do these other shows that you've got during the year just make it difficult to do those series? Yeah look it is non-stop work well also uh yeah no it's non-stop work I was gonna say also there's a significant difference in presenting fees to (laughs) Uh, to drama fees and so at this stage of my life while I still am looking as young as I am (laughs) the drama's always going to be there so I'm kind of parking that a little bit for the moment and I've done like I was in the Crocodile Dundee movie and I've done little bits and pieces here and there but not another major series role because not unlike billable hours the position that I've sort of worked myself into after all these years is oh for that five months of work I'm going to actually need to show more wages than that to meet you know, the lifestyle, not even lifestyle, but things that I have tried to put in place for my retirement and saving and paying off things and whatever, I'm kind of like, like maybe I might have another three or four years if I'm super lucky of decent earnings where uh, I can do presenting and tour and have all these lovely arms to my, uh, strings to my bow. But then I am definitely going to get to a point where I'm just not going to be wanted for nighttime television. So I don't know if I'm making sense, but where all of a sudden either my age or my ideas will have me behind the eight ball of what needs to be seen at the main, you know, the peak hour of television. Yeah, you try to have a realistic timeline about career opportunities and expectations. Totally. I don't want that moment to happen, which has happened to so many women who've gone before us, you and I, Sandra, where they've been told in the car park they're no longer required and it's a huge shock and it's really offensive. So I don't want to feel like that. I feel like I'm already ready for that discussion. Whenever it happens, I don't want it to feel insulting. I want it to feel like I've had an amazing run. Cool. Now I'm about to switch tracks and now I'm going to go head on into this side of my business. 
It's empowering yourself through that process, I think, of staying aware of the reality about where you sit in other people's timelines. Yeah. And also your perceptions and desires change too. Like, you know, I don't always want to be doing what I'm doing now and I don't know what I want to be doing. Do you feel the same? Yeah, definitely. All I know is I want options and I want a bit of control or input maybe. Well, I used to say I had a great cheers every New Year's Eve where I'd say I've got no uh, New Year's Eve resolutions, but as far as I'm concerned, more money, less work is kind of <laughs> how I felt. How do I get more money for less work? And this last 12 months, as, as disastrous and, and horrifying and traumatic and whatever that it has been, it's also been a really great awakening for me in embracing the slowdown as well. I don't mean I'm going to slow down on the pace of my work output, but certainly I've been, you know, the fly-in, fly-out stuff of years gone by is no longer appealing to me at all. I don't mind going away and doing my six weeks of work or my two weeks of work or my four days of work. I don't mind doing that, but I am definitely making sure I embrace and totally contrazume the moment of being back in my house and being present do the work outside the house while I'm home. I am yours, mummy's taxi, I'm your slave, what can I do? COVID has provided unbelievable clarity in our life. It's simplified everything, but it's also just cut the rubbish, hasn't it? I am still essentially living a lockdown life and loving it. So I'm, even though I don't need to out and about in Victoria, uh, well, who knows, it changes, it chops, it changes, but uh, certainly at this exact point in time, I don't need to wear a mask. I'm still wearing a mask. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, I don't care if I look like an idiot. In the wintertime, it keeps me warm. And for the rest of the time, I'm kind of, I just think, I, like I'm no longer browsing in the shops. Yeah, yeah. I no longer pop over and think, I just need that thing and then come home with 20 more bags. I'm not doing any of that anymore. And, all, and for the first time in a lot of years, I feel like I'm, I've got some savings to do some bits and pieces in improving and decorating the house. So I'm definitely in a new phase for sure. Now, you've had a couple of big scary moments in life, clearly with Dan's health, and I have as well, and it does change your perspective. Yeah. And I think once you turn 50, I hate the word retirement. I don't even consider it because I just want options and I want to keep evolving and learning and growing. I heard a great joke the other day which said, I'm going to retire, said no one in the arts ever. <laughs> ever. What have those two scary moments taught you about perspective? Um, I mean, there's been so many more of them, Sandra, too. Like, I've had three malignant melanomas over from 21 till two years ago, from when I was, I had my first one at 21. Wow. I've had, uh, my youngest child had a, a SVT and had to have heart surgery a couple of years ago. Like, it's been no, I don't talk about any of that out and about because I, I just, I don't want to discuss it as magazine fodder. And it's personal. Yeah, and lots of major life things go down. But certainly during the trauma, I don't talk about it at all. That's my way of processing. And then after that's all lifted, I'm then happy to talk about it if that helps others. But I certainly... You'll never know what dramas are going on in my life because I am quite a family vault. And my family's privacy is something that I have ferociously uh, guarded certainly since the babies were born, for sure. So when it comes to social media, we'll never see pictures of the girls? Never, never. In, so my eldest is 15. I've never posted her ever. Does she understand why you've made that decision? They do now. Uh, no, they didn't mind. They got it. That was just a family rule. 
So someone approaches us in the street, from when they were little kids, I'd be like, um, please don't step into the photo. And nor do I want them taking it, because a lot of people will come up and just hand the children the camera. I'm like, oh, just give me that, I'll do a selfie. Because <laughs> they're not your photographer, anyway. And the children, I just think, by the time... This is only appropriate for me and my family. I love watching other people's kids on Instagram. I love it. I love seeing them grow. I love seeing them blossom. I love it. It just didn't feel like it worked for me. And now, with the 13-year-old and the 15-year-old that I do have, who are just these dreamy women, I think they're very happy that not everybody in the whole country knows who they are. Because they can be a teenager in privacy, you know. They can, they can do their things and make their mistakes and whatever without, uh, you know, being hunted by this relentless machine that doesn't care. The machine doesn't care who it's reporting on. It just needs to clickbait stories about stuff. So I'm happy that, you know, my kids are both on those devices and on those social networking uh, sites, but it's just for them and their pals. Yeah. So what advice do you give them on managing the social media space? Because they would have seen, you know, the pros and the cons for you and what you go through. I don't even know. I haven't even asked them whether they've looked at stuff. I mean, there'll be some hateful stuff written about me online, but we're like... Uh, there's always going to be, luckily, in their setups at school, across the board of friends they've had over the years, you're kind of getting one of everyone. So you're getting a friend who's a bit of a manipulator. You're getting a friend who's a bit of an old softie. You're getting a friend. So not unlike what life is like, you can start to learn your lessons on how you respond with that type of person. So that's their, also their little social media world at the moment because they're private accounts. So it's just the people that they know. But I find for the teenagers at the moment, it's those big group messages that are bigger trouble than, um, you know, the social networking stuff because then it's people that you know getting the knife in. Now, you're a born and bred New South Wales girl from Gosford and you had the pleasure, you've told me, of living up here for a couple of years, but it didn't quite work out and you moved back to Melbourne. I know you're not going to dish Melbourne and you're not going to sort of celebrate Sydney, but was it hard leaving? Oh, you know, um, it, it, it got to the point where I moved down to Melbourne for house husbands and my children were in sort of kindy when we started that. And by the time that house husbands had sort of finished and there was maybe one more year, it got to the point where my eldest was in grade six, going into grade seven. I thought if I'm going to go move back near mum and dad, which was always uh, on our menu, it was just always what we were going to do. And we found a, ha- a lovely house in Coogee that I think I spoke to you about it at the time. I'd no longer rented the house and the fact that I'd rented it, where it was, what the rooms looked like, what the exact address was and how much I was paying in rent was in the papers within about four minutes. I was like, oh, my, I've been in Melbourne too long. And that's an agent that sold you out really, isn't it, to the press? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, well, it's got to be someone sort of saying, look, this area, I mean... I was about to say this area is looking up. I mean, if I'm the addition, I'm not convinced the area is looking up. But anyway, it was such a big shake-up for my ladies that Ruby started at year seven, Sophie started at a new school in grade five, which she really took to and adored, but at that time she wasn't well with her heart at all. And so with the eldest going into year seven and all the pressures, I mean, year seven, oh, my God, people talk about year nine. Yes, it's hardcore for friendships, year nine, but year seven is the onslaught of you're no longer a kid, you are now an adult, please hand in this work five minutes ago. Oh, my God, Father. And it was just a real upheaval and the girls were, uh, certainly my oldest was quite distressed through our time in Sydney. I think 
of all this yummy primary school life, this one village where we lived, this one group of yummy people around us at all times that had become our urban family, and then nothing. New area, everyone was very welcoming, new people trying to, you know, ingratiate us in their social stuff, and we were tired and we just weren't up to it. I'd done takeaway, which hadn't been as successful as we'd hoped. And we sort of got to the end of six months and, 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 the, and the, my eldest had been asking, could we go back to Melbourne every single night, every single night without fail. She'd stand up at the end of our bed, just really emotionally overwrought and begging to go back to Melbourne. I was just like, oh, my God, Father. Well, what do you do when someone's, like, when your eldest child is that distressed? What do you love about Melbourne? What do we love about Melbourne? It's incredibly underground, Melbourne. What I do like is the cold weather, I think, forces you into a better family dynamic. I don't know, that. Um, that's just for me. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely mainlining that out of the back of my brain. We're all together quite a good deal, and I really love that while they're still old enough to even be near me. Whereas in Sydney, just want to be out seeing someone, you know, down at East Gardens, that want to be out down the beach. Dan would be off there, I'd be off there, and uh, never the twain. And also, I mean, please God, may it continue, is that this just doesn't feel like the paparazzi presence like there is in Sydney. So, like, I could do, go and do school, yeah, school drop-off in my uggies and a pair of underpants. No one would care. Even though I miss Sydney desperately because I miss the Central Coast. That's where I'm ending up. Everybody knows it. That's where I'm going. I've got a, my huge group of buddies up there. That's where I will be spending my retirement years. But certainly while I'm a part of this heavenly family, it's, uh, it's Melbourne for us for the moment. So you sort of got that five to eight year window where they get the girls through school and, and then you can sort of make your way back up north. Yeah. If that's what happens, who knows how the world may spin by then. Like that, that would be, you know, what is it they say? Life happens when you're making plans. I'm, I'm full of plans at all times, but it's definitely what propels more exciting things in my life is kind of having these things in plan that could go ahead. Now, one thing you've done, you know, in the last year is, is of course, this great book, which is an hilarious P-take on celebrity advice. And you did it with Dan, I understand. Was it fun writing it? No, it definitely was not fun writing it. How it didn't break Dan and I up remains a mystery. But anyway, we started at the beginning of the lockdown because the two of us have been giggling about celebrities uh, globally trying to give tips to people on how to live their lives during lockdown. You're like, you know, guys, just move to your 17th room in the West Wing and that should certainly make for a change for the day. And so we started to take apart that self-help genre and things like, uh, you know, uh, we turned everything on its head. We did the, sort of talked about the power of negative thinking and making sure you always get your way and winning at the game of marriage with your partner and Lots of fun little uh, tips and bits and pieces on how to ignore self-help stuff while at the same time sort of dropping in some odd stories where I'd been very badly behaved over my menopause. So um, <laughs> while the product was fun, it was great to have a book. Dan and I wrote it together and I think, uh, yeah, it's a bit difficult when you make your partner your boss. Uh, when I say boss, I don't mean as the boss, but I mean because he's so much more clerically organised as well as incredibly creative, he was the right person for me to sit down with because I'm like, where do you start? Like, I understand writing autobiographical stuff because that's kind of a recall and making it lovely along the way. 
but coming at an entirely different genre of subject matter for me, I definitely needed someone to help me harness my thoughts. I would never have put bum to seat. There's a lot of courage in being a comedian. There is, look, you know, you're going to, how, how far are you willing to go for the joke? So how do you, how do you hone that radar? How do you make sure your radar is in tune? What do you do? You turn your ears on. Even though sometimes people will write tricky stuff in your Instagram feeds, I mean, you know, God, there's so many thousands of comments at different times, you can't take heed to everybody. But, yeah, with every insult comes in uh, sometimes a little tip on how to turn it down. It's how you... That's how we've gone from the, oh, I think, my early days of stand-up where all bets were off. You could say anything you wanted. None of this, you know, how very dare you say that word. None of that. And over the years, it's the audience that have taught us how to, you can dance on the line, you just don't need to go over the line. I'm sort of using a few metaphors, which I can't bear, but anyway. No, but I think I get what you mean. And, and it's about constantly just... Yeah, and if you want to change... Are uh, fantastic. If you don't want to change, you're like, I should still be able to tell those jokes from yesteryear. Guess what? You're not going to be working. So you, I think opening your ears and, you know, listening to what's happening in our society. Okay, I don't understand this section of society, so now I need to learn about it. Instead of being like, oh, uh, you know, I, I don't understand about prefix names. We're just like, okay, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to learn about that and, you know, start using terms correctly. Not L, B, G, T, A, B, C, X, Y, Z. Oh, my God, that one, that joke sh shits me off so much. Yeah. And it's like, that's not a lot of words to learn, guys. No. <laughs> it's not hard. I mean, the hilarious sort of, you know, in old Australia, we would be able to do those sort of jokes. Well, those sort of jokes are gone. You know, disrespecting women is really starting to dissolve. I, I feel like... We're certainly taking a lot of we're taking a lot of steps in the last ten years into creating a better society and a more um, a society more conducive to kindness to each other than we ever have. Hey, thanks so much for your time. You've been an absolute joy today, and we really appreciate you spending some time at Short Black. Thank you so much. Thank you, my darling. That was so much fun. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.